0: I think a lot of people died unnecessarily. We should be using every tool available to us. That means therapeutics. Today,
1: I sit down with Dr. Ben Carson, the former U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development and a retired pediatric neurosurgeon.
0: The American dream is alive and well, but you have to work for it.
1: In this up-close-and-personal interview, Dr. Carson tells us his story from living in a rat-infested tenement and rising from the bottom of his fifth-grade class to becoming the chief of pediatric neurosurgery at John Hopkins at age 33.
0: People are people. And what makes a person who they are? Their skin color? Really?
1: And he shares his insights into our current political moment, from the rise of critical race theory to vaccine mandates for children.
0: Why would you subject an innocent child to a lifetime of unknown risk?
1: This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Well, Dr. Ben Carson, it's such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank
0: you. It's always wonderful to be with you.
1: You know, I've always, uh, we, we, when you were uh, secret, housing secretary, uh, we didn't really get to sit down for a longer sit down like we're doing today. And I've, one of my kind of I guess hopes was that I get to talk to you a little bit about about kind of where you came from, and uh, it's just it's such a remarkable story in some ways. I have to say, you know, my parents are immigrants from Poland, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, in some ways, your story happened, of course, in America. But it's kind of like what the American dream is, also to immigrants in a way. It just strikes me that way, right?
0: No question about it. Um, There are those who don't particularly like my story. Uh, because it doesn't really cater to the ideal of victimhood. But, you know, my mother was just such an emphasizer of personal responsibility. And, uh, you know, my parents got divorced early on. Uh, We had to move uh, from the home that I really loved. Uh, It was one of those 700-square-foot GI homes. But it was our 700 square feet had a little yard, and we just I just thought it was heaven on earth. But we had to leave there.
1: Uh, And but your mother was one of 24 kids. I mean, that's I have relatives that are one of 13. You know, but one one of 24. Well,
0: remember, in the rural South, uh, many decades ago, uh, very large families were not nearly as rare as they are today. Uh, but even even then, that was a very large brood. Now some of them were stillborn, uh, but uh, she was uh, mired in poverty and uh, had difficulties with school. Didn't quite finish the third grade, uh, but she was endowed with wisdom and. Uh, she got married. They moved to Detroit. He was much older than she was, more than twice as old. And uh, he worked in a factory. But she was very thrifty. She saved every extra penny uh, and put it into land. And at one point, they owned quite a lot of property. And if my father hadn't gotten into gambling and, and drugs and women, uh, I mean, women are OK, but you only need one. Uh, you know, I think uh, I would have probably been born in very different circumstances, but uh, she discovered that he was a bigamist, had another family, and uh, we had to find a place to live. Unfortunately, one of her older sisters in Boston took us in. It was a tenement, a typical tenement that you see on TV with rats and roaches and gangs and sirens and murders. and broken glass all over the place, but it was a roof over our head. And that couple of years gave my mother enough time to sort of get on her feet, and we moved back to Detroit. We couldn't you know, afford the, the house that I thought was our dream home, but at least we were someplace. And um, you know, I was just this horrendous student. Um, I didn't think I was smart. None of my classmates or teachers thought I was smart. But my mother thought I was smart, and she was always encouraging me. And uh, she really believed in education, because, you know, she worked as a domestic, and uh, you know, these were beautiful homes that she cleaned. And she was always kind of saying, "What is it that makes these people so successful?" And she concluded that it was they read a lot. They didn't watch a lot of TV, but they read a lot. And she came home and imposed that on me and my brother. We were not happy at all. But uh, you had to do what you had to do what your parents told you in those days. Today we probably well we would have called social services and they would have carried her away in handcuffs. But in those days,
1: for, for saying, "Hey, you're going to read," what was it? It was two books a week, or, I think, or two books
0: yeah. a read from the public library and submit to her written book reports, which we didn't know she couldn't read because she was clever. She was, put little highlights and marks and all over the place. But the interesting thing was, even though I didn't like it very much, at first, after a while I got to the point where I couldn't wait to get home to get into my books because it opened up a whole new world. You know, we lived with rats and roaches and and poverty. But as soon as I opened the covers of those books, I was transformed to another place.
1: And how old are you when you're reading, when this sort of this happens? It
0: it started in the fifth grade, Okay. and uh, I started reading about scientists and surgeons and explorers and entrepreneurs, and I very rapidly came to an understanding, as my brother did, that you were the person who was going to decide where you're going to go. Nobody else got to decide that, even though there were a lot of people around us who were constantly telling us that the world was unfair, that you wouldn't be able to succeed, uh, why do you have these lofty dreams? But uh, you know, we forgot about all of that. So wait, so you're saying
1: that all along there's, there is this narrative being pushed at you from like, oh, yeah. friends and relatives? Oh,
0: absolutely. OK. Uh, some people think that that's a new thing. It's, it's much more intense now, uh, because there, there were more people when I was growing up who would say, you know what? Uh, all that's going on, but you can make it. You know, if you really work hard and you really study hard, you can make anything happen that you want to. You heard that a lot more then than you hear that today.
1: Okay, but then, there, but the other voices were still there. That
0: uh, other voices were powerful, and uh, but my mother's voice was powerful too. And uh, her favorite poem was a poem called "Yourself to Blame." You're the captain of your ship. If things go awry, don't blame others. You have yourself to blame. And uh, we always heard that point when we came up with an excuse, so we stopped coming up with excuses. And uh, you know, within the space of a year and a half, I went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class, uh, much to the consternation of all the students who used to call me dummy, who were now coming to me for the answers. But uh, you know, it was it was an incredible transformation uh, that occurred at that point. And it was interesting, some of the adventures, uh, some of the teachers, some of the reactions to the teachers, because uh, we lived just on the white side of the railroad tracks. So I had to go to white schools. And, uh, you know, when I was doing poorly, they said, well, of course he's a black kid, of course he's going to do poorly. I mean, it was no big deal. But when I rose to the top of the class, what is this that is going on here? And uh, you know, I particularly remember when I was in the eighth grade, and we would have a special award for the uh, highest achieving student. And I was pretty sure I was going to get the award. Uh, I carried a report card around to each teacher, and they would put your mark on. I had all As. Got to the last class, which was band, which I was a very good student in band, so I knew I was going to get an A in there. And the band teacher gave me a C to ruin my report card and ruin my chances of winning the award. But, to his chagrin, it turned out the band didn't count, so I got the award anyway. And And so
1: this was just straight-up racism, basically.
0: Well, straight-up ignorance. Mm -hmm. Because I I think in those days, people had ideas uh, and they weren't particularly ever challenged. And uh, so it was sort of a natural thing for people to think that way, and and I talk about that in my new book that will be coming out uh, in a few months, uh, called Created Equal. And uh, you know I don't absolutely harbor uh, grudges against that person or other people who had funny ideas, because that's what they saw, that's what they heard, that's what was inculcated into them. And I think we have a duty to try to educate people. And uh, you know, the amount of racism in America has dramatically changed from the time that I was a youngster. I remember uh, when a black person came on TV when I was a youngster It was a, who wasn't in a servile role. It was a big deal. Everybody, hey, hey, come and see this. This is incredible. Um, and now, I mean, you have black admirals and generals and CEOs of Fortune 500 uh, companies and presidents of universities, including Ivy Leagues. We've had a United States president who was black, elected twice, a vice president. I mean, I'm not saying that we have reached nirvana, but it is markedly different than it used to be. And anybody who won't admit that is just playing ostrich and sticking their head in the sand.
1: I want to. I want to talk a lot more about that, but. I'm just thinking about this time where in a year and a half, you actually went from—I you, you, mean, this is, this is what I'm hearing, right? You're at the bottom of the class, your mom forces you to read books and write report card reports on them, and in a year and a half, you shift to the top of the class. Do you remember like in, in something specific, like an aha moment? I don't know. Was,
0: I do. I do. It was uh, because I, was, I read all the animal books. I loved animals. And then I read all the plant books. And then I started reading about rocks and minerals, because we lived near the railroad tracks. And what is there along the railroad tracks? Rocks. So I would collect them in boxes, come home, read about them. Pretty soon I could name any rock, tell you how it was formed, where it came from. Still in the fifth grade, still the dummy. And one day, the science teacher walked in. He held up this big, black, shiny rock. And he says, can anybody tell me what this is? Well, I never raised my hand. But no one raised their hand. I actually knew what it was. I raised my hand, and he was shocked. He said, Benjamin? I said, Mr. Jake, that's obsidian. And there was silence, because nobody knew whether it was right or wrong. They didn't know whether they should be impressed or should be laughing. And finally, after he got over his shock, he said, that's right. And I said, "Obsidian is formed after a volcanic eruption, and the lava flows down. And it hits the water. There's a supercooling process. The elements coalesce. The air, um, air is forced out, and the surface glazes." They were all staring at me. They said, "What in the world is going on here?" But I was the most amazed person because it dawned on me that the reason I knew the answer and nobody else did is because I was reading the books. And I said, aren't you tired of being called a dummy? And I was. I didn't ever let anybody know I didn't like it. But I really didn't like it. And I said, what if you start reading about other subjects? And from that point on, you never saw me without a book. Waiting for the bus, reading a book. On the bus, reading a book. Sometimes missing my stop because I was reading a book. And uh, it really changed my perspective on the world.
1: It's amazing. Frankly, how how powerful! I mean, I've had I've had some amazing experiences reading as well. But this is,
0: and you think about the fact that uh, all of a sudden I wasn't the first one to sit down in a spelling bee. Why? Because I was looking at words all the time. I knew how to spell them, (laughs) and you learn grammar and syntax, and you learn how to express yourself. I mean, it has many wonderful uh, side effects.
1: Well, so I mean, the I want to say right now that you know that there just seems to be a lot less of an emphasis on exactly these things, right?
0: No, that's, that's the, the critical problem that we're having in our schools right now. You know, in, in Baltimore City, um, the graduation rate obviously is very low, but the number of students who are working at grade level is almost zero. And uh, in so many of our large cities, that seems to be the case, and the politicians, I don't know what's wrong with them. I remember in Baltimore during the No Child Left Behind series, uh, some of the schools that were failing badly, they said, we're going to send these kids to other schools. The politicians physically gathered around the schools saying, no, these are our schools. These are our failing students. We want to let them fail. Uh, they didn't say that, but uh, obviously that was the message. And uh, you know nothing has improved, and uh, you know we really need school choice in a big way, and we need to make it possible uh, for the money to follow the children, so that they can get a good education. Because it doesn't matter what background you come from in this country, if you get a good education, you write your own ticket.
1: We're kind of at this place, right, right now. you hear about, you know, the zero for example, zero students. I know of cases exactly in the school system where zero percent of the students are actually functioning at grade level. Right. Right? This general phenomenon is not uncommon. Is the system just broken? It's, it's completely broken?
0: And- well, I don't think we're putting the correct emphasis on education, like we did you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. You know, Alexis de Tocqueville was very impressed with our education system when he came to study America, did his big two volume set on democracy in America. And uh, all you have to do is go back and look at some of those exit exams. Uh, I mean, they, you had to really know something to, to graduate from the sixth grade back in those days. And uh, today, I mean, you've probably seen some of those man on the street interviews where they go and say, uh, who were the opponents in the Civil War? And they're like, was it England? I mean, they just uh, people don't know a lot of basic stuff, and it's it's not just embarrassing; it's frightening, because we only have 330 million people. You now it sounds like a lot of people, but it's a quarter of what China has, a quarter of what India has. In the future we have to compete with them, which means we need to develop all of our people. We can't have a large group of people who know nothing and are easily manipulated.
1: You mentioned something quite important. It's you're saying that, you know, never mind civics, but like history. Some people just don't know some of the most basic history or, you know, we can talk about this a bit too. You know, no interpretations of history that are highly opinionated. Let's say
0: exactly. Well, you know, instead of critical race theory, we ought to be teaching critical math theory, and critical English, and critical history, and uh, civics, and, and the things that people really need to know in order to be uh, useful, contributing citizens of our nation. And what about history? Like how is and history is so important because your history is what gives you your identity. And your identity is what gives you your beliefs. So by distorting history uh, we are having a very disruptive effect on the identity of our young people and uh, it makes them very vulnerable. And I think that's why it's so easy for them to You know, a third, I think, of our young people now think socialism is okay. They don't really know what it is. They think it's probably familiarly with social media. They don't know what it is. And uh, it would be wonderful if they could go and live in frankly socialist countries for a year or so. I think they would have, it would open their eyes tremendously in terms of the uh, tremendous opportunities that we have here. And, uh, and why we need to make sure that we maintain freedom in this country. This country is about liberty. It's one of the, the key things, obviously, that we emphasize at the American Cornerstone Institute. Uh, faith, liberty, community, and life. And it was because people wanted to be able to live freely without the government's neck, foot on their neck that they came here in the first place without the government mandating that you must do this and you must do this and you can go here and you can't go there. That's not America. And uh, we cannot be fooled into thinking that's America uh, on the basis of some health uh, issue. We can't let any kind of issue destroy our freedoms.
1: You know. It- that's, frankly, a very you know, interesting piece of history right that isn't necessarily obvious or probably even known by many people, right? I mean, that, that's, it's, you, you think that's kind of the definition of America. It's the people coming who, who were basically persecuted in their homelands um, originally, and you know, some folks just,
0: they just simply uh, aren't aware. Yeah, they, just, they just wanted to be able to, to worship as they wanted to worship and to live the way they wanted to live, as long as it wasn't infringing upon somebody else's rights. And uh, that was the promise of America. It's the reason that it's still the destination for so many people. You know, I mean, think about it. If we were a systemically horrible, racist country, why would people be forming caravans trying to get in here? (laughs) And then once they got in here, wouldn't they flee? No, that's obviously not true.
1: Well I was you know I was reading, for example, that the most affluent Hispanics in the world are in, in America. Yes,' was kind of an interesting again, odd statistic. Is that, that's correct That's right?
0: correct. Yeah. And also when you look at the the demographic group that's starting the most businesses, uh, you know I, I think they're coming here and they're recognizing, wow, look at these opportunities that exist here that did not exist where we were coming from, and they take advantage of it.
1: So, you know, the Cornerstone Institute, of course, you've, you founded it uh, not, not too long ago. You know, a big, uh, you mentioned, you know, some of the, the, the core ideas behind it, um, but a big focus that you've had has been tackling this whole idea of critical race theory in schools and just frankly the question of, of race, right?
0: Right. Uh, it's, it's, it's such an important issue because, you know, the United States of America uh, plays a very important role in the world. And if we lose our status and we lose our standing, uh, the world will deteriorate very rapidly once again. When we are strong, there tends to be much peace in the world. When we are weak, uh, the despots begin to uh, reappear. And uh, how do you weaken America, a place that is so strong uh, historically? Uh, You divide the people. You know, Jesus said it first, Abraham Lincoln repeated it, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And uh, critical race theory, the 1619 Project, uh, which, you know, presents white people as oppressors and the cause of the root cause of the problems for everybody else and that everybody else is a victim. Uh, I'm quite at a loss to explain how that, improves a country. How does that make a people better? It doesn't. Uh, It creates divisions and animosity and resentment, Uh, not to mention the fact that it's based on a series of untruths. You know, people are people. And what makes a person who they are? Their skin color, really? Their hair texture? I don't think so. As a neurosurgeon, I can tell you that when I open somebody's skull, and start working on the brain. That is what makes them who they are. The other things are just peripheral decorations, and they have nothing to do with who you are as a person. And uh, that's what we need to begin to really truly understand. And you you look at a human brain versus an animal brain, say a dog, and uh, what's the difference? Well, the surface topography is quite similar. But the dog's midbrain is much more developed than the human midbrain. And that allows you to react. So dogs react much faster than we do. Most animals react much faster than we do. But we have these very well-developed frontal lobes. Now, what are those for? Rational thought processing, extracting information from the past and the present, integrating it, understanding it, projecting it into the future, controlling what's going on. That's what we do as human beings, rather than acting like animals. Critical race theory tells you, no, 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 no. Act like an animal. Just look at the surface of that person. Look at their external characteristics and make a judgment as to who they are. Why should we be going backward? we need to be moving forward. We need to use the intellect that God has given us to move forward, not to act like animals.
1: Well, and there's, so there's this assumption that, you know, based on skin color, right, that all the people in, with this particular skin color will basically kind of be the same.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's exactly right. And it, it's, it's just so ridiculous. And uh, you know, to assume, for instance, that, that white people are oppressors, uh, and it started with slavery and that everything they do is to maintain their position, is false on the surface, because most of the white people in the South did not own slaves. They couldn't afford slaves. So to say because of their ancestry of slaveholding, they're evil, is just not correct. Also, uh, and a mo- a lot- most people don't know this, there were black slaveholders in the uh, And in 1670, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia actually declared that blacks and Indians could not own Christian slaves, which was their euphemism for white slaves. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of very interesting history if you go back and, and delve through it. Uh, the point being, that people are people, and when they find an advantage, they take advantage of it. And uh, you also must remember, where did the slaves come from? The African slaves usually came from tribal fighting. And one tribe would prevail over another, and they would either kill or take the enemies as their slaves. And then all of a sudden, there were these Portuguese people saying, can we buy some of those slaves? And they said, hmm, that's a good way to get some cash. And, uh, you know, that's really uh, a big part of how things got started, and it just multiplied from there.
1: Nobody disputes the horror of slavery in America. Do you feel like that chapter has been closed, I guess, in this
0: well, country? Well, uh, remember, slavery has been a part of society since we have written records. And I'll tell you something that's pretty shocking there are more slaves in the world today than there have ever been. And you look at uh, sex trafficking, and um, even uh, in the United States, we are the biggest subscribers to human trafficking. Uh, so we don't have to go back 200 years. We can look at what's going on right now, and we really should be focusing some attention on what is going on right under our noses and the incredible lives that these sex slaves live. It's awful. Uh, There's a a movie coming out soon called The Sound of Freedom uh, that really details the child sex uh, trafficking that goes on and uh, the kind of lives that they have to live. And it's so awful that sometimes when they're rescued, they actually go back to it because they don't know any other life, they don't feel any other security. Uh, So we have a job to do. But um, there was nothing unique about the United States in having slavery. What was unique is that we had so many people who were vehemently opposed to it that we were willing to fight a civil war lose a huge number of people to try to stop it. And some people say, well, that Civil War, that wasn't about slavery. That was about maintaining the union. Well, remember, the reason that the South wanted to succeed is so that they could maintain slavery. So obviously, that was the root cause. As I always say, elementary, my dear Watson.
1: (laughs) I think you've said this in the past, that you know, this whole kind of critical race theory, this idea in the 1619 Project that slavery is the origins, origins of America are in slavery, that it's actually kind of more of a tool to divide Uh, than an attempt to paint an authentic history.
0: uh, That's correct. And, you know, if you really want to fundamentally change a country and change a society, you first must get people to feel that it needs to be changed. That it is so inherently evil the way that it is that it needs to be changed. This is all part of that uh, plan to try to make us appear evil so that people will want to change our system into something else. And the exact opposite is the case. You know, this is the place that has provided more opportunity. Uh, for more people, not only in this country, but around the world. This is the first superpower of the world that has not gone around and trampled and tried to conquer everybody else. Um, it is an amazing place, and I think a large part of that has to do with our faith and the fact that you know we did have a moral basis, uh, a Judeo-Christian foundation. Uh, and the development of our Constitution, our Bill of Rights. And as we've moved away from that, and if you go back and you look at the writings of, of Lenin and Stalin and some of the other Russians, and they talk about the strength of America, our family structure, and our moral foundation, and how that was going to make it extremely difficult to ever conquer to defeat the United States of America, and that the way that it would be done is to corrupt them morally and to destroy their family structure. And uh, it seems like those are the things that are going on right now. and. Uh, you know, we have to be smart enough to realize that we have something that's particularly wonderful here. This is sort of like uh, the older brother and the younger brother. The younger brother has this delicious dessert that the older brother wants, um, but the but he can't have it. So he says to the younger brother, maggots smothered in rats. And they're all kind of horrible things. And the little brother says, yeah, I don't want this. And he runs out, and the big brother eats it. You know, we have a wonderful system, other people want it, Uh, we cannot be so foolish as to allow someone to make us think that it is rotten to the core and that we need to change it. Do we need to learn from our mistakes? Absolutely. Have we been perfect? Absolutely not. Has any society been perfect? Absolutely not, because they're inhabited by people and people are imperfect.
1: I'm just going to think back to
0: something you said
1: earlier. This is like people. I think folks might take issue with this with this statement, basically saying that America hasn't gone around trying to push its weight around. To, you know, there's been. You know, I'm just thinking about places like, for example, in that Afghan nation building in Afghanistan, which of mm-hmm. course, you know, didn't didn't end well. There's all sorts of examples in South America that people point to. I mean, there were. There's been. There's been some pretty serious, I guess, deviations from what you said, right?
0: Well, we. we so. I haven't said that we haven't. Haven't used our weight inappropriately from time to time. Uh, what I did say is we haven't gone around trying to conquer everybody and pilfer and take all their stuff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier that uh, a nation divided, you know, it isn't going to do. A well, house divided against itself right. isn't isn't going to work. And we're very much in that sort of place, aren't we, here in America right now?
0: Unfortunately, we're very much there right now. We've, we've allowed, and, and I hate to say this uh, to you because you're part of the media, but uh, you know they have fomented the hatred. Uh, and I don't know why they do it. Uh, and, and I don't know why they push the scenarios that would make socialism and communism Uh, more acceptable. Have they not read history that tells you that the first thing that communist governments do is completely control the media? Do they not know that? So, I think they're being a little short-sighted. And I always encourage journalists, particularly young people, uh, to recognize that the only business protected by our Constitution, the only one, is the media, the press. Why? Because they were supposed to disseminate unbiased information to the people. And that's the only way that the people can know uh, the information which will allow them to have an opinion, to have a will, because the country was supposed to be run on the will of the people. That was what distinguished us from other nations that were government-centric. We were supposed to be people-centric. And it was a great experiment. And many people thought it would never work and that somehow we would eventually wind up being government-centric. But that's why our our founders spent so much time on our Constitution, to provide the people with the tool that they needed to keep the government from expanding and controlling their lives. The press, you know, I think you could say the press has
1: shifted in its vision from truth seeking which I think has always been the, the uh, idea um, and I'm talking about you know sort of the, the ideal of journalism not propaganda masquerading as journalism to something like narr- you know sort of reinforcing narratives that are quote unquote the truth that are known to be you know the, 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 the correct view
0: well the, the majority of people no longer trust the press
1: what, how do you function in a society that 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 is in that kind of a situation.
0: Well, it becomes very difficult. I think that's one of the reasons we're having so much difficulty right now. And, uh, but that doesn't mean we have to give up. Uh, We have to recognize what the source of the problem is. And, uh, you know, we need to discuss it. We need to understand that we, the American people, are not each other's enemies. And the real enemies are those who are trying to make us think that we hate each other. You know that person who lived across the street from you peacefully for the last twenty years is not suddenly your enemy because they have a different yard sign than you do. Uh, we have to stop buying into this stuff
1: you know i I mentioned earlier that i I feel like you know your your story, which we only we, i think we only got to kind of you know the begi- the beginning of it I think earlier. I want to touch on it a little more, but but was a a personification of this of this American dream and that that many got actually, right? At, mm-hmm. what, what's the status of the American dream today in your mind?
0: Well, I think uh, there are still those who push very hard. Uh, here's something that's that's very interesting. Uh, there's a wealth gap that exists in our country. I think everybody recognizes pretty substantial uh, between blacks and whites. Except If you look at Ghanaians and Nigerians that come to this country, there's no wealth gap. Now, if you know families from those places, what you know is that there's a tremendous emphasis on family and education. And they've eliminated the wealth gap. So I wonder if perhaps there is something that we should glean from that (laughs) and recognize that the American dream. Is alive and well, but you're not entitled to it. You have to work for it, mm. and that was what people wanted. They wanted to come. They said, "I don't care that I have to work hard, as long as I get to benefit from that hard work." And somebody else doesn't come along and say, "Well, I'm taking your stuff because you don't really deserve it."
1: You know, we were you. You've commented on this recent election in Virginia, mm-hmm. right? Um, that it was kind of a, well, actually what, what, let, let me let me ask you, um, what what is your comment on the election in Virginia?
0: Well, uh, I was very pleased to see people willing to cross uh, the political barriers and vote on what was an important issue. And that is, who has the right, To say how your child should be educated. Do your children belong to you or do they belong to the state? And I think that was an issue that Democrats, Republicans, Independents all could come together on. And I think there are many issues that they could all come together on. You know, when you look at the economy right now, uh, the, the tremendous inflation, more so than in the last 30 years. What's causing it? Well, one of the big drivers are energy cost. That was a self-inflicted wound. You know, stopping the Keystone pipeline on day one, uh, putting in place regulations uh, for energy production, uh, to shut down a lot of what was going on already. We had become energy independent. We're a net exporter of energy. Um, the costs were very low. We had the cleanest air and water since we've been measuring air and water cleanliness. And we just chucked all of that. Well, of course, that's going to drive the cost of energy up tremendously. And who's going to suffer from that? Not the rich. It's the people who most need our sympathy, who most need our encouragement, who most need opportunities, who are being hurt by that the most. And if we were intelligent people, we would say, let's not throw away all the things that have given us energy independence and freedom. But let's do work on green energy, on renewable energy. There's no reason that we can't pursue both of those things at the same time and substitute green energy as it becomes uh, more practical. Uh, And I think that's the kind of leadership that we need in our country, not knee jerk, because those people did that, we're not going to do it. You know, that's like third grade stuff. Apologies to the third graders. I want to go
1: a little. Back to um, kind of your story here, because I want to talk about some things related to the. You know, of course, we're in the still in the middle of a pandemic, or perhaps a pandemic shifting into an endemic Mm -hmm. uh, phase of a virus. I mean, that's what many uh, people much smarter than I have been telling me. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that. Before that, I thought, hey, let's let's talk about sort of just very briefly your kind of transition from becoming an A student and you know your mind opening up to you know, becoming a neurosurgeon. There are many steps there, yeah. right? But w- at what point did you really know that this was, that that's where you needed well, to be?
0: Well, I, I always wanted to be a doctor. That's the only thing I ever wanted to be from the time I was eight years old. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't really putting two and two together, that you had to be a good student to get into medical school uh, until much later. But uh, after the Obsidian episode, uh, I really began to, to have hope. And one of the things that I really hated as a youngster was poverty. You know, some people hate rats and roaches and snakes. And I hated poverty. That is, until I began to read about all of these successful people. And then I didn't mind poverty anymore because I knew that it was only temporary. I knew that I could change it. I knew that my destiny was in my hands. It wasn't in the hands of society or somebody who was a racist who tried to get in the way. I, if, if I wanted to choose to let that be an obstacle, I could do so. But I didn't have to. And that changed my whole perspective uh, on life. Uh, Were there difficulties along the way? Uh, Absolutely. But uh, I didn't stop and blame other people for those difficulties. I always looked inside and I said, is there something that you could be doing better? Is there something that would help this difficulty go away? And generally speaking, the answer was yes, (laughs) there was. And when you rectified that, the problem went away. Uh, I could have... Not rectified it, and just point it to somebody else and saying they're in my way, they're the blame. Uh, but I wouldn't be talking to you today if that in the case.
1: <laughs> well, let, let, let's talk about the let's talk about COVID nineteen. You're not a fan of big government. You're not a fan of uh, you know government structures telling the the populace what to do, how to behave, and and so forth. Or you know, or like, or perhaps even manipulating them into behaving in certain ways. I don't think you're a fan of any of these things.
0: No, I'm definitely not, and and therefore, you know, I have uh, some difficulty to, with the way that COVID is being utilized uh, to manipulate and to frighten people. Um, you know, we should be using every tool available to us to fight the pandemic. There's no question about that. But that means you know, therapeutics, which have been poo-pooed, and I understand why, because in order to get an an EUA, an emergency use authorization to pursue the vaccines, uh, you can't have anything that's effective as an alternative. So that's a defect in our system. We need to get rid of that uh... and we should be able to pursue all the different avenues and let them take us where they possibly can i think a lot of people died unnecessarily uh... because we had that attitude and uh... you know you look at uh... you know the infusion of, of, of antibodies you know monoclonal antibodies uh, a tremendous advantage uh... which was not really utilized the way it should be early on. And, you know, I, I, my life was saved because of it. I was severely ill with COVID. I was ready to move on to the next world. And it was really that therapy that turned things around for me. Uh, but there are many things that have been very effective that we have not pursued, including natural immunity. Um, you know, the CDC so much as admitted a few weeks ago that they don't have evidence that natural immunity uh, is effective or is not effective, uh, whether it's, it's easier or less easy to transmit the disease. And then they admitted that they don't collect that information. Well, why wouldn't you collect that information? Why wouldn't you want to, to know that? Uh, the only reason you wouldn't do that because you didn't want to know the answer, because it didn't fit very neatly into what you're trying to do, which is get everybody to be vaccinated. And I think that's one of the reasons that people don't trust the information that's coming out. And a lot of the people who probably should be vaccinated are not doing it because they see these inconsistencies, these things that make absolutely no sense, this demand that everybody get a vaccination, except if you're coming across the southern border illegally, then it's not all that important. Or, or you're in
1: Congress, for
0: that matter. <laughs> or you're in Congress, that's right. So, you know, our people are not stupid. They're able to see these things, and they're able to process that information. And if we stop treating them like children and level with them, people will make the right decisions. We have tremendous uh, health care in this in this country, uh, great doctors and healthcare providers. And uh, we have people who have different circumstances. Some have natural immunity. Some have other systemic diseases, uh, a variety of different conditions. So what their treatment should be or, and what preventative measures should be taken, they should do that with their physician, not some government bureaucrat who has a one-size-fits-all measuring stick.
1: Well, so okay, so two things, right? The first one is It's true that the CDC hasn't been doing this work around natural immunity, around gathering data around it. But there are—I mean, I'm I'm aware of a paper that Brownstone Institute just published somewhat recently, just looking at all the studies out there about natural immunity. Because not everybody isn't studying natural immunity. There's like plenty of folks that are, and you know, it's pretty clear based on the entire body of evidence from what they found that it's. Incredibly effective, and as one might expect, right, in every other situation, right, that we that we've been aware of. So this is this has been perplexing to me.
0: Well, it is it is perplexing. It makes absolutely no sense, and it's obviously being ignored because it goes against the everybody has to be vaccinated mantra, and. it's one of the reasons that I think people are losing confidence very quickly in the CDC, and the NIH, and, and our governmental agencies, and that's a shame, because that's going to impact public health issues well beyond COVID, and it's a serious issue.
1: The other thing that occurred to me, and you, you you touched on it just as uh, just as you finished the the, the previous uh, the answer, but you. I've almost, I've almost been conditioned based on hearing the news about COVID and how we have to respond to COVID, that medicine somehow, you know, there's this this medical body uh, that that from on high kind of dictates to all medical practitioners what they all should do, right? And this is just, I mean, and I know rationally that this is absolutely not how medicine works. That doctors are. Trained so that they can deal with a patient as best they can know how, right? It's never a one size fits all cookie cutter answer. So, how is this that this has somehow changed in this pandemic?
0: Well, you know, we've had uh, a lot of pressure on doctors to conform. Uh, you, you have to uh, subscribe to the, what uh, you're being told, or you can be canceled. And, uh, you know, doctors are like everybody else, you know. Some of them are courageous and some of them are not. And uh, so that's why it's important for the individuals to actually know the truth. And that's why the press could play such an important role to get the real facts out there so that people know what to work with. I mean, we, we have a situation where you have the government advocating that children, Be vaccinated. Even though the risk for death for a child with COVID is 0.025 percent, essentially the same as it is for seasonal flu, you don't see us doing all this every year for seasonal flu. So you know the risk of mortality for a healthy child is approaching zero. And yet we're saying do this without knowing what the long-term risks are. We don't know what they are. And uh, why would you subject an innocent child to a lifetime of unknown risk? It just makes absolutely no sense. And uh, I think a lot of people are seeing that. I I think even our court system, three federal judges have said, You know, no mandates. You can't do this, and you certainly can't relate a person's livelihood to it. And yet, the executive branch of our federal government says, let's push on with it anyway. What is that? That's lawlessness. So how can they sit around and criticize the smash-and-grab people and everybody else who's exhibiting lawlessness when at the highest levels of government we're exhibiting lawlessness?
1: People have argued that you know some people should be vaccinated to protect everybody else, okay, and that some people have argued that this is why children should be vaccinated, given even given the realities that you've described that uh, that you've described there. I mean, what, what do you think about that?
0: Well, I think it doesn't make any sense because uh, if the elderly people are already vaccinated, which well over ninety percent of them are, then what danger is it to them that somebody else would come around who wasn't vaccinated? See, so that, that argument doesn't make any sense on his face. Everybody get vaccinated so you can be protected. But you're not really protected because even if you're vaccinated, they're still going to give it to you. What? I mean, they're not listening to themselves. They're, they're just talking. And uh, you know, somebody has proclaimed a, a certain agenda and you have a bunch of people following it who are not thinking for themselves, intelligent people. They're what Vladimir Lenin referred to as useful idiots. That A number of
1: people that I've spoken with, the public health experts, are deeply concerned about the cost to the whole profession, to the whole concept of public health. Uh, that this, this, this is essentially you know, killing killing the discipline.
0: It, it really is. It's, you know, we need to have faith in our government. We need to have faith in our healthcare systems. And uh, by injecting politics into it, I think we have put ourselves behind the eight ball. It's going to take a, a while, I think, uh, to reestablish that trust. And it can only be done by leaders who are not deeply uh, indebted to political figures. And uh, you know most of the people who ascend to the leadership positions in our country have done so by, you know, you rub my back, I'll rub your back type stuff. Rarely do we get somebody who has not become indebted to others and I think that's one of the reasons that we find ourselves in the difficult situations that we are in so
1: with public health first let's talk about you know the way out right because I know you think of a lot about these things I know you're you have that incredible spirit of optimism can overcome anything there's a lot of people feeling really despondent out there mm-hmm. I mean just on the public health side which is such such a fundamental foundational, aspect of, I guess, public life, you know. Um, how do we get out of that? How do we get out of this?
0: Well, I think the way out is quite easy. We say, sorry, you know, we've been having tunnel vision, and that's not who we are. Let's open this thing up to all the different mechanisms. Let's look around the world at things that work. Let's look at the fact that in the, on the western coast of Africa, There's almost no COVID. Uh, And let's ask ourselves, why is that? And then we see, it's because they take anti-malarials, particularly hydroxychloroquine. Uh, Let's study that. Let's see what's going on there. Um, Let's listen to these uh, physician groups who've had incredible success with ivermectin. Uh, Let's look at the results with monoclonal antibodies. Let's look at all of these things. Put them all in our armamentarium so that we don't have a one-size-fits-all system. And let's throw the politics out. We could solve this problem pretty quickly. COVID is a virus. Viruses mutate. That's what they do. And they will continue to mutate. Fortunately, most of the times with each mutation, they attenuate. They become a little weaker. Uh, Pretty soon, you know, they're sort of everywhere. They become endemic. They become part of something that we just learn how to live with. Um, we can admit that and deal with it, or we can take every little mutation and every little change and try to make it into a crisis, so we can frighten people and control their lives more.
1: Well, so in a broader picture, you know, we are we were ta- again talking about a house divided can't function, right? So what is what is the path out through here?
0: The only path is strong leadership. and We don't have that. Uh, we need people who know how to bring. That was actually the thing that I think was most appealing about Joe Biden. Uh, it was said that he was going to bring people together. Uh, of course, he's driven them much further apart. Uh, but that's what we need right now, somebody who can look at what's good for everybody. And, uh, and let's work on the basis of that. Knowing that we have a, a pluralistic society, knowing that not everybody is going to agree about everything, why not learn how to take everybody's best interest in consideration? Why not learn how to look at what's logical and what makes sense? And why not encourage discussion of those things, rather than everybody getting their respective corners and shooting hand grenades at each other? But that requires real leadership. And I don't care where that leadership comes from. I don't care which party it comes from. But it is essential uh, for the prosperity of this nation.
1: Well, Dr. Ben Carson, it's such a pleasure to have you on again.
0: Well, thank you. It's always good to be with you. And I appreciate the fact that your outlet actually tries to be logical.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Amazing distinction.